Take your Bibles, if you would, and turn with me to Joshua chapter 1 as we begin our series of studies through this book. David did a good job last week of setting the historical context for us in which this uh, story takes place, but just to remind you of the condition that the people were in and that Joshua was in at this point is that the nation was perched, as our story begins, on the eastern side of the Jordan River in Transjordan, what today is the country of Jordan. And Moses, the leader who had been the charismatic, uh, magnetic figure that the nation had followed for 40 years, had died. And I'm sure the nation was feeling a bit tentative at this point. Moses is the man that had formed them into a nation. Moses is the one who had led them into battle with the most powerful nation on the earth at that time, the Egyptians, and delivered the nation from bondage to their former oppressors. Moses is the one who had been their great lawgiver and statesman, who had spoken face-to-face with God and received from him uh, the revelation that formed the core of their identity as a nation. And Moses had enough charisma and magnetism to keep this nation together for 38 years to 40 years of wandering around in the desert, in the wilderness, and uh, had the leadership gifts to keep this nation together from fragmenting and, and falling apart. And he brought them right to the brink of everything that their history as a nation had been pointing toward, and that was the conquest of the land, and then he dies. So here's a nation left right on the edge, right on the brink of everything that God had been preparing them for and leading them up to, and the one who had brought them to this point, the one whom they had looked to for leadership and guidance, was now dead. And I'm sure the nation was a bit tentative. There was a huge uh, vacuum that had been left at the top. And Joshua was the man who had been appointed to fill that vacuum, to step into Moses' shoes and provide leadership for the nation. And we'll see in a moment, as Mark alluded to earlier, Joshua himself, just as the nation must have been tentative, waiting for Joshua to prove himself, to prove himself a leader who was worthy of following, who could be trusted to lead them into battle with the the Anakim, the giants who they'd heard inhabited the land. So Joshua himself must have been a bit tentative about taking over for someone like uh, Moses and unsure of whether he could capture the allegiance and loyalty of the people as, as Moses had been able to do. So that's where we find Joshua and the nation at a critical transition point in their life, their dream, their goal, their conquest, unfulfilled, and faced now with a vacuum of leadership at the top and looking anxiously to Joshua to see if he would be the man who could lead them in. Now let's begin uh, reading the first um, couple of verses of chapter 1 just to get a fill out the context here, historical context. Now it came about after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, that the Lord spoke to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' servant, saying, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise, cross this Jordan, you and all this people, to the land which I am giving to them, to the sons of Israel. Just a minor point, uh, many places Joshua is introduced in this account as Joshua, the son of Nun. And we have no idea who this Nun was, just a faceless uh, father, but evidently a man who did a good job in the quiet anonymity of his own family of raising his son to be prepared 
for uh, leadership. Now, one of the things that David suggested last week we're going to do in working our way through the book of Joshua is to look at what we find in this book as, uh, as types of revelation that were to be revealed later. If you're walking down the street with the sun at your back, you will discover that the sun casts a shadow which goes before you. If someone was standing around a street corner, they would see your shadow first before they saw your body. <clears throat> That's the image that Paul uses in Colossians 2. It says, many of the figures and events and people and institutions in the Old Testament were like that, that God was standing behind them as the sun, causing a shadow to be cast by these figures in front of them. And the substance, the reality, is found in Christ, but the first thing we encounter is the shadow. And Joshua and the land of Canaan and Moses stand in the Old Testament as foreshadowings of truth that we don't get the full revelation of until the New Testament. Now, there's a couple of interesting truths that come to light then, just in these first couple of verses, if we understand that. For one thing, it's very clear that Moses is identified in all of the scriptures with the law, that uh, he stands as a symbol for the law, he's identified with the law, he's associated with the law. And we learn a very um, profound truth from this. The land of Canaan is a picture of the life that God intends for us to live. It's a life of security. It's a life of peace. It's a life of rest. Uh, It's a life of rich provision and supply where every need of life is abundantly provided for by someone else, as the Lord pointed out. says, I will allow you to drink from wells that you did not dig, to reap from fields which you did not plant, to live in houses which you did not build. A rich picture of provision and supply. And yet we learn a very profound thing from the first couple of verses here that the law and Moses standing as a symbol for the law is unable to introduce us into that kind of experience. The law simply cannot do it. Well, why is that? Well, what are the two characteristic words of all of the Ten Commandments? How does every one of those start? It starts with the words, thou shalt. Now, where does that put the pressure to produce and to perform. Well, it places it squarely on our shoulders, just like a a hammer beating against a gong. Repeatedly, we're told in the Ten Commandments, thou shalt, thou shalt, thou shalt. As Leviticus 18 says, the premise of the law is do this and you will live. Now, what God is indicating to us here by taking Moses out of the way before the people come into the land is that the law can never usher us into the fullness of God's promise. If we're depending upon ourselves and counting upon our ability to perform and to produce, then we will be left in the wilderness, empty and uh, dry and hungry. Now, furthermore, we learn another profound truth is that the leadership of the nation, the people of God here, is being handed over to a man by the name of Moses. Now, as David pointed out last week, the, uh, or, uh, to Joshua, and as David pointed out last week, in Joshua's name means the Lord saves or salvation is from the Lord. And when Joshua's name was translated into Greek, into the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which was the Bible of all of the early Christians, His name was translated as Jesus. Jesus is the Greek name of Joshua. So this meant that an early Christian picking up the book of Joshua would begin this story uh, in uh, verse 1, reading it this way. It came about after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, that the Lord spoke to Jesus, saying... 
And so the early church would right away get the picture that it's an individual by the name of Jesus who leads God's people into the promises of God in the promised land. And that's the lesson for us also today, that the one who ushers us into the richness of God's provision is a leader by the name of Jesus. If we long to experience the fullness of life, then he's the one that we, we must follow. Now, there are at least three things that we learn about uh, conquering and conquest in these uh, opening verses. Uh, Canaan is a picture of the life that God intends for us to lead, but it's clear, first of all, that the victorious Christian life, which the book of Joshua pictures for us, is a battle. You can't uh, help as you just glance through the opening chapters of Joshua to realize that life and the victorious Christian life, as some refer to it, is a battle. It's trench uh, warfare. As David said last week, we have to reclaim the land uh, foot by bloody foot. That's why at the, the end of the day, you are exhausted because life is a battle. I've got a good friend of mine who simply does not go out on Friday night because he's so trashed by the end of the week from just making it through work and handling the stresses of ordinary life that he's got to recuperate before he can have any fun. So he always goes out on Saturday night. But that's just a reminder to us that life is like that. It's not a, some kind of a Sunday school picnic. It's, it's a war. It's a battle. And the enemy is shooting uh, real bullets, and they wound, and they injure. Some people have a picture of the victorious Christian life that is sort of like Patton sweeping across Germany. You know, no one able to stand in this path, and the enemy is just wilting and fleeing before him with no real resistance. Uh, and yet, uh, the scripture teaches us that the enemy is very real, and he's strong, and he's powerful, and he shoots real bullets. Or other people think, as Ray Stebbin pointed out, that the Christian life was somewhat like the Pirates of the Caribbean. I don't know if you've ever been on that ride at Disneyland. But you get into this boat, and you go down into this dark, foreboding tunnel, and suddenly, without warning, these strange, menacing figures are leaping out at you from the darkness and firing muskets off in your face at point-blank range, but you sit there with your hands quietly folded because you know that they aren't shooting real bullets. But the enemy that we're up against is. And so that means that we can get injured in the process. We were had a, a computer malfunction in the office last week. whole system crashed, and someone was complaining about uh, computer glitches. And one of our other staff guys said, hey, that's nothing. Life is one big glitch. And uh, we all had to agree with him read a great quote this last week uh, indicating uh, the truth that if people don't get you, uh, machines will. This columnist said, the goal, the purpose of all inanimate objects is to resist man and ultimately defeat him. <laughs> if you've ever owned a computer or a car, you can agree with the truth of that. So that's one thing that we learn right away. Life is a battle. It's never, we're never promised that it will be, be easy. Secondly, I want you to observe the verb tense in verse 2. The Lord says to uh, Joshua that he is to take this people across the Jordan to the land which I am giving to them. But I want you to notice there is the verb tense, the land which I am giving. That implies the second thing about the triumphant Christian life is that it is a process. God does not give us victory and conquest all at once. It's a process. It takes time. Uh, 
a number of years ago, people used to, Christians used to wear little buttons around that had the initials on them, PBP, GNFWMY, or something like that. But anyway, what the initials stood for was the slogan, Please be patient. God is not finished with me yet. And that's true. Life is a process. Uh, I'm glad to know that. I've had a temper that I've struggled with for a number of years. I'm a competitive person by nature and enjoy athletics. And uh, I realized that I had a problem with my temper when I started getting more distance out of my driver than I did out of my drive. And I realized it was time to go to work on this. And by God's grace, and purely by His grace, I have much better control over my temper now in those situations than I used to. Now, I still fight skirmishes and lose occasionally, but things are getting better. And that's what the Lord indicates to Joshua. Life is a process. It takes time. And really what we're about in the Christian life is reclaiming territory from the enemy. Territory that he has claimed for himself. Strongholds of evil thought patterns or behavior patterns or relationship styles or response patterns which inevitably hurt us and and hurt other people. And what we're about in the business of life and following our leader Jesus is to reclaim these areas from the enemy. But it's a process. It takes time. C.S. Lewis pointed out every square inch of the universe is claimed by God and counterclaimed by Satan. So we're in a, a battle, and it takes time. And maturity is a process. I came across this quote this last week, which I thought captured very nicely what the Scripture indicates about our progress toward maturity. This is from a writer by the name of Larry Crabb. Maturity is less related to perfection than to a growing awareness of imperfection an awareness that deepens our appreciation of the cross and drives us toward dependency on Christ for anything good to come out of our lives. Mature people wrestle with their sinfulness, mostly in an intensely private battle, fought against stains that are visible only to those whose standards are intolerably high and whose awareness of self-deception is disturbingly acute. In the midst of ongoing warfare... They find rest in the reality of abounding grace and perfect love. Mature people are internally comfortable, but never complacent. Now, in verse 3, we see another characteristic of the triumphant or victorious Christian life. The Lord says to Joshua, Every place on which the sole of your foot treads, I have given it to you says to Joshua, those boots, those sandals are made for walking. And every place you walk, I have given it to you. Now what I want you to observe there is a change in verb tense from verse 2 to verse 3. In verse 2, he uses the present tense, I am giving the land to you. And then in verse 3, he says to him, I have given it to you. Well, it's his way of indicating to Joshua that even though life is a battle, and even though it's a process, what he's indicating to Joshua is that victory is certain. Friends of mine who play chess uh, use a term to, to refer to a game when an accomplished chess player is, is handed a game which isn't over yet, but in which the posi- uh, pieces are positioned in such a way that if he plays uh, his pieces intelligently, as an accomplished player would, that victory is guaranteed, victory is certain. And they call that being handed a one game. Now, that's what the Lord is saying to Joshua and through him to us. You've been handed 
a one game. It's a battle and it's a process, but you are going to make it. You're going to win because I'm going to see to it. I'm the one who's going to ensure success. I'm going to guarantee for you victory in this process. So victory is certain. Now, if that's what we're destined for, if what God wants for us is to experience a life of provision and conquest and rest, what are the things that get in our way? What are the things that hamper us? Well, I think if we look at Joshua and try to uh, get a feel for his frame of mind and heart at this stage by reading the rest of this opening paragraph, I think we'll get a good feel for the things that were a problem for Joshua and entering into conquest and are the same problems that we have. Let's read verses uh, 3 through 9. Just reread verse 3. Every place on which the sole of your foot treads, I have given it to you, just as I spoke to Moses. From the wilderness where they were camped, and this Lebanon, evidently the mountains of Lebanon to the north were visible, even as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, many miles to the east, all the land of the Hittites, which is another name for the land of Canaan, and as far as the great sea toward the setting of the sun, that's the Mediterranean, will be your territory. No man will be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I have been with Moses, I will be with you. I will not fail you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous. For you shall give this people possession of the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous. Be careful to do according to all the law which Moses my servant commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left, so that you may have success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not tremble or be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Now one thing that that strikes you right away in reading over this opening paragraph is the fact that the Lord says to Joshua, Be strong and courageous. And not just once does he say this to Joshua, but three times. Verse 6, he says, be strong and courageous. In verse 7, he says to Joshua, be strong and courageous. And in verse 9, he says to Joshua, be strong and courageous. Well, now why would the Lord need to say that to Joshua three times? Well, obviously, he wasn't strong or courageous. You know, if, if you, uh, you're around somebody and they are real perky and they're uh, whistling an old Buddy Holly tune and they're chipper and they got a smile on their face, you don't have to say to them, cheer up. Listen, why are you so gloomy? Lighten up a little. You know, because they already are. They're already cheered up. You only have to say cheer up to someone who's a bit downcast. And likewise, you only have to say to someone, be strong and courageous if they're feeling what? If they are feeling weak and fearful. And you only have to say it to someone three times if they're feeling a lot weak and a lot fearful. So that indicates the frame of mind that Joshua was in at this point. And those are the two great needs that we have that God wants to make provision for in order for life to be what we long for it to be. We, just as Joshua was, are weak and inadequate 
and we are fearful and timid by nature. When we're faced with the responsibility of relationships and life and job and family, all of us feel that at times, sometimes more acutely than others, but that's an experience that all of us have when we face life. As we sense our inadequacy, our insufficiency, we feel a sense of weakness. And we also feel timid and fearful. And these things hamper us. They cripple us in, in life. Uh, when we talk about a sense of weakness or inadequacy, we're really talking about the same thing that psychologists refer to when they talk about self-confidence or self-image or self-esteem. And psychologists have been recognizing for years what the Scripture has been saying all along, that it's, it's critical to face life with confidence, to have a healthy sense of self-confidence and self-esteem. And without it, we're hamstrung. Even the world recognizes this. I heard last week that George, George Carlin has developed a new um, roach spray. And the way he says this thing works is you spray it on roaches and it lowers their sense of self-confidence so that when they walk in, they're not sure they're in the right apartment. And so they leave. So I don't know if it'll work or not, but I, I like the idea. But we recognize instinctively how important a sense of adequacy is for life. The leading cause of death right now among people ages 15 to 24 is suicide. And almost in every case, it's linked to a lowering of self-esteem and worth. I don't know if you've been following this tragic story about this man who killed his wife and two daughters. But the psychiatrist who testified at his trial said exactly the same thing. as He felt overwhelmed by his sense of inadequacy in providing for his family. And out of desperation, killed them in the psychiatrist's judgment to spare them of the consequences of his own inability to provide, provide for them. So it's critical that we learn how to, to find a source of that. And fear, likewise, can be a crippling thing. Just as a sense of inadequacy can cripple us and paralyze us, so a sense of fear can do the same thing. I don't know if you remember the movie uh, Jaws. I took Debbie to see that on opening night, and we got stuck in the front row of the theater close enough to get wet and uh, that was a pretty intense movie and Debbie wouldn't use a stopper in the sink for three weeks after we saw that thing because fear is the kind of thing that can really can really cripple you and people today are struggle with any number of phobias is the technical term for them that's just a fancy word for fear there are some people who suffer from what's called agoraphobia where they are trapped within the walls of their own house because they have such a fear of being out in open and public places. All of us suffer to some degree from acrophobia, which is a fear of heights. I read last week that there are druggies who suffer from anti-acrophobia, which is the fear of not being high. I don't know about that, but... <laughs> but fear can, can hamper us in any number of ways. It can hamper us at the office. There may be somebody that we are afraid to stand up to because they intimidate us. We fear the consequences of doing that. I've seen parents who are intimidated by three-year-old children who were paralyzed by the strength of will they encounter in a three-year-old. As uh, James Dobson says, the real key question in parenting, the first question has to be answered is, who's in charge here? And it is fear which, will, which causes parents to turn over the, the control of the home to their children. It's fear that may keep a wife from taking a stand against an abusive husband and doing something about that treatment, fear of the consequences. Same kind of fear can allow a husband to be emasculated and henpecked by a strong, aggressive wife because he fears her ridicule 
and contempt, is intimidated by her. So those two things, a sense of inadequacy and fear, can paralyze us and keep us living lives which are timid and lack confidence. It's fear that keeps us from saying no. uh, All of us have difficulty, I'm sure, in saying no. But largely what keeps us from saying no when we should is a fear of, of rejection we may encounter from someone to whom we have to say no, a fear of the consequences, the lowering of the image that people may have of us, fear of missing out on something. And so we can make foolish choices in life because we're afraid to say no. I think it's important, then, in looking over this paragraph to identify the things that, that the Lord offers to Joshua, which were designed to be an antidote for this sense of inadequacy and fear. And there's two things in particular that I want to draw your attention to that were the resources that the Lord had provided for Joshua. The first thing, as we've read, were the promises of the Lord. First thing he says to Joshua is you can be strong and courageous because of the promises that I have given to you. And it reminds him of the promise that he'd given to Moses, that I will give you the land. And he reminds him of the oath that he swore to the fathers in verse 6. Just as I swore to the fathers, so you will lead this people into conquest. And so the first thing that we need in, in facing life is to remind ourselves of the promises of God. And I hope you have, you've learned to do this as you read the scriptures to identify statements in there from the Lord that you can cling to, to to face the pressures of life that will remind you of the promise of God to see you through or to minister to you or to protect you or to strengthen you. Mark mentioned a good example of this man in his growth group who had taken great comfort from the promise of God in, in Psalm 25. I found a number of promises in the Scripture to be of great help in my own uh, personal life. 1 John 1, nine, for instance, where John says that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. What does it mean that God is faithful to forgive? Well, it means that we can count on him to do it. He's trustworthy. He's promised us that every time we come back to him and confess sin, he promises to forgive. He is faithful to forgive. And this can be a tremendous way to restore to us a sense of self-acceptance and self-worth, that regardless of my inability to behave as I should, regardless of what anyone else may think of me, whether they like me or accept me or not, I know that I'm unconditionally accepted by, by God. And that can restore to me a sense of self-worth and self-confidence. I had to discipline my uh, daughter this week, and she's a very tender-hearted girl. And my concern for her is not that she won't uh, recognize her own sinfulness, but that she won't recognize the forgiveness that God has in store for her. I wanted to try to illustrate this to her after one episode this week. And uh, I knew from... Uh, her work at school, that what happens is if you uh, misbehave, uh, your name is written up on the chalkboard and little marks are placed next to your name. And so we have a little chalkboard set up in our our hallway. And so I took her in there and I said, now, Jana, when when you sin, it's just like God takes a piece of chalk and he he draws a mark on the board because he notices sin. He observes it and he, and he, and he, he chalks it up. But... When you come to the Lord and you confess your sin and you admit to him that what you did was wrong, God takes this big eraser right here 
and he wipes it right across that chalkboard, and the mark is gone. Can you find that mark anywhere? No, it's not there. Well, now that's what God wants us to remember, is that he's given us a promise that every time we feel the sense of guilt over things we've done, that he will wipe the slate clean, blot it out, give us a fresh start. Now, the other thing that uh, the Lord gives to Joshua as an antidote for his weakness and fear is his personal presence. Not only his promises, but his presence. Notice what he says in verse 5. Just as I have been with Moses, I will be with you. I will not fail you or forsake you. And then again in verse 9. It says, Be strong and courageous, do not tremble or be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. That reminds him, especially in verse 5, that just as I have been with Moses, so I will be with you. And what he says to Joshua, what I want you to remember is that the real secret to Moses' success was me. I was with him. That's why he was successful. Now, Moses might be gone, but I'm still here. And I will be with you in the same way that I was with Moses. And he promises Joshua in verse 5 that I will not fail you. That's a, a striking word in Hebrew because it literally means I will not let you sink. I will not allow you to sink. You remember several years ago in uh, Florida, they had this massive problem with the sinkholes. The underground sources of water in a time of drought would dry up and it would weaken the earth beneath these very expensive homes. And without warning, they would just collapse into this pile of rubble. And what the Lord is saying to Joshua and to us is, I'm never going to let that happen to you. You may encounter times where you feel all alone, like you're, the, like you're the only one and no one is standing with you and no one's there at your side. But he says to Joshua, I will not abandon you. I will not forsake you. I will always be there. We spent some time in Atlanta this summer on a little family vacation. And there are parts of that little town that are a ghost town. In other words, there are dilapidated buildings there that have been forsaken, have been abandoned. That's what makes a ghost town a ghost town. And that's a beautiful picture of what life is like when God is not in it. The buildings are grayed and brown and decaying. They're empty and lifeless. And the Lord says to Joshua, I'm never going to let that happen to you. I'm not going to forsake you. I'll always be there when you need me. David uh, Roper told a story one time of going to somebody's house, and they had a little guard dog. It wasn't a particularly menacing guard dog, but he had his young son with him. Brian, I think it was, was maybe three or four. And they came up to the door, and this guard dog attacked like a, like a Doberman. And it didn't frighten David in particular, but it terrified his little son. And his son just kind of clambered right up his leg. And David held him in his arms, and uh, he was protected. The dog just couldn't get to him up there. And uh, Brian at last started to relax and feel a sense of security. And as they drove home, Brian said to his father, he says, you know, Dad, I'd go anywhere with you. And that's the same thing that the Lord is trying to say to Joshua. You can go anywhere because I'm with you. I'll be there to, to protect you. And that's the basis on which we need not fear. James Dobson tells the story of a, a boy who, who was asked by his mother to go into a pantry and get a can of tomato soup, I think it was. Maybe you've heard this story. And it was dark in there. And the boy said, well, Mom, I'm afraid because it's dark. 
And uh, his mom said, well, don't worry, because Jesus will be with you. And he thought about that for a minute and says, yeah, but mom, I want someone with skin on. (laughs) And we can all identify with that. It's comforting to have a person there to help us. Now, the Lord doesn't promise Joshua that you'll always have somebody, some person there to provide strength and encouragement. But he says, I will always be there. Wherever you go, I will be with you. And you can face whatever it is and with confidence and with strength because I will be with you. Now, the result then that can happen to us in life if we understand the promises of God and the presence of God is that we can face life, no matter what it is that's laying in front of us, we can face it with a quiet sense of confidence and assurance. Not in ourselves, but in the Lord. It means there's nothing that we need to be afraid of any longer. There's no one that we need to be afraid of, no one that we need to allow to intimidate us any longer, whether it's on the playground or in the classroom or in the office. There's no one and no thing that we need to fear any longer. We can face life with a quiet sense of confidence and assurance and courage. Now, it doesn't mean that you ought to go out and start jumping motorcycles over buses or something like that, but it does mean we, we don't need to be intimidated by anything any longer. Not because we're tough, not because we're strong, because we're weak, but because the one who is with us is strong. So that means you can walk into a crowded room full of strange people you've never met with a quiet sense of confidence. You can have that talk with your boss that you've been putting off out of fear with a quiet sense of confidence. You can tackle that new project you've been putting off because you're afraid of failure because you know the Lord will be with you to walk you through it. Now there's one last point I want to make on this issue which is found in verses 7 and 8. It's very striking that in the middle of these glorious promises the Lord makes to Joshua, I've given you all the promises you need. I will give you my presence. He reminds him of the importance of his personal obedience. In fact, he relates the ultimate success of this project to Joshua's willingness to obey. It says in verse 7, Be careful to do according to all the law which Moses my servant commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left, so that you may have success wherever you go. That is, success for Joshua was conquering the land. It says the same thing in verse 8, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have success. Now what the Lord is really saying to us here is that we do have to be involved in this process, that we're not passive participants, but we are active participants, that the Lord's Provision for us is not something which is apart from our activity and apart from our cooperation, but something which he provides to us through our activity and through our participation. And he stresses the importance of pledging ourselves to obey the truth of God. Uh, Football players are handed at the beginning of a football season a playbook. And this playbook has all of the offensive and defensive formations and plays that they will use during the during the football season. And it's important for those players to take that playbook home and to study it and to understand in each given circumstance what their responsibility is. But not only is it to are they to master the concepts and understand what their responsibilities are if the team is going to be successful, 
when it gets to fourth and inches, they've got to do it. They've got to do what what the playbook outlines as their responsibility. And the scriptures are very much the same way. They're like a strategy manual that God has given to us. And we must study it and understand what our responsibilities are and pledge ourselves when it comes to crunch time to do what it outlines for us. Now, success for us won't necessarily mean a promotion or a raise in pay or a, or a house in the hickories, but it will mean what success is measured by in New Testament terms, a life of maturity and character and richness and fullness and peace and confidence. And it's linked to our commitment to obey the truth. Now, the Lord says to Joshua in verse 8 that this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth. I think what he means by that is, Joshua, before you go about the business of teaching this book of the law to other people, be sure that you're putting it into practice yourself. I read a story this last week about a woman who came up to a family conference speaker after he'd spoken. He was engaged in conversation with some of the people around here, but but she just couldn't wait. She barged right into the middle of this conversation, elbowed other people aside, grabbed the attention of the speaker and says, Look! You've got to tell me what I can do to get my kids to be more patient. And, uh, so we have to be, first of all, sure that in our handling of the Scriptures, we're applying it to ourselves first. Now, he says in verse 8 that one of the ways you help to do this is by meditating on it. Meditating on it day and night. The word meditate there is a very interesting uh, word. One of the ways in which it's translated is with the word to murmur. Now, what is somebody who is doing who is murmuring? Well, they are talking to themselves. And what the Lord says to Joshua is one of the habits I want you to develop is the habit of talking to yourself about the Scripture. Take some truth of the Scripture, some passage, and mull it over. Talk to yourself about it. Ask yourself the question, what does it mean for me to obey this particular passage of Scripture? That's how the Lord says you can be careful to do according to all that is written in the Scripture. And what it might mean for you to obey a particular passage of Scripture might take a different form than what it might mean for somebody else. One thing I'd encourage you to do this week is meditate on on, uh, the main thrust of the Lord's message to Joshua. Be strong and courageous for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Now what does it mean for me? in my life, in my relationship with my children, in my relationship with the people with whom I work, in my relationship with people in my neighborhood. What does it mean for me personally to be strong and courageous? What am I not doing because I feel inadequate or fearful? And how can I begin to do that by God's grace? And it may take different forms of expression for different people. In this book I alluded to by Larry Crabb, he gives a couple of examples of how this might work. For instance, he says if you have a woman who's grown up with a father who ridiculed her and every opinion she expressed, she may learn that the way to protect herself is never to speak her mind. And so in in her relationship with her husband, she may be very passive and never, never express her own opinion. And for her, being strong and courageous would mean to trust God for the strength to speak her mind when they're faced with an important decision. Another woman, however, may have grown up learning that the way she gets what she wants is to speak up. And she may be very outspoken and bold and frank, but it's a way for her to engineer her circumstances so that she gets what she wants, not depending on God at all. So for her, 
the courageous thing may be not to say anything, but trust God to protect her interests. But the way you understand that is by meditating on the Scripture, mulling it over in your mind, pondering it, and, and applying it to the various situations you find yourself in. That's how you can be careful to do according to all that is written in it. And he says we're to, it's important that we not turn from it to the right or to the left in our obedience to the Scriptures. Do not turn from it to the right or to the left, he says. And I think what the Lord is alluding to is our inevitable tendency to distort the, the, the standards of Scripture, either in the direction of legalism, turning to the right, or in the direction of license, loosening the standards of Scripture to the left. I think one of the ways this expresses itself is in our tendency to condemn in others what we excuse in ourselves. I tend to be quite legalistic in applying the Scriptures to other people and tend toward license in applying it to myself. One columnist expressed this exact attitude with these words. She said, I am firm. You are stubborn. He is a pig-headed fool. <laughs> I mentioned our week in Atlanta. When we uh, left to come home, this may sound uh, impossible, but we took a wrong turn when we left uh, coming out of Atlanta. There really, honestly, are not that many choices you have to make, but we made the wrong one. And the uh, road didn't look very familiar, and uh, it got real rough. We're in a passenger car, and we went up by abandoned mines and ruts and weeds growing in the middle of the road. And we started to get real panicked, and finally, after about an hour of this, we saw uh, a house, living people, which was terrific. So I got out of the car and I said, excuse me, um, we're trying to get to, to Rocky Bark, and you, can you tell me where, where we are? I said, well, yeah, you're in Atlanta. And I said, Atlanta, that's where we started from. And it turned out by making this wrong turn, we just made this hour and 15-minute loop and wound up back where we started. But what I learned is if you don't follow the directions, if you turn to the right or to the left, you get lost. And so the Lord says to Joshua, be careful to do all that is written in the book of the law. Now, we're out of time, so I won't take, any, I won't take the time to actually read verses 10 through 18. What Joshua does in this passage is he instructs the people in verses 10 and 11 to get provisions together because in three days you're going to cross the land. And in verses 12 through 18, he takes charge of Reuben and Gad and Manasseh and reminds them of their responsibility to go in battle formation with the nation and help to conquer the land before they resettle the turf to the east of the Jordan. And what you pick, what you pick up in the rest of the chapter is here's a new Joshua. Here's a man who's speaking with authority and with confidence. And he has the ability now to inspire loyalty in the people who follow them. And they pledge themselves to do so. Joshua able to move into the vacuum created by, by Moses' loss. Not because he reminded himself of how much training and education and willpower he had to bring to the task. But he was reminded by the Lord that I will be with you wherever you go. Ian Thomas, one of my favorite writers, he uh, paraphrases what he thinks must have been the Lord's words to Moses at the burning bush. And this was the same lesson that he wanted to get across to Joshua in this chapter. Just as I have been with Moses, he says to Joshua, so I will be with you. God says to Moses, you thought that there must be something about it, that is the burning bush, at once peculiar and wonderful, something unique, that it could burn and burn and burn 
and go on burning, and yet not burn itself out. But you are wrong. You are quite wrong. Do you see that bush over there? That scruffy, scraggy-looking thing? That bush would have done. Do you see this beautiful bush over here, so shapely and fine? This bush would have done. For you see, Moses, any old bush will do. Any old bush, if only God is in the bush. Let's pray, and then we'll spend some time in worship to, to the Lord. Father, we do confess we're so much like uh, Joshua. It's a comfort to us to realize how ordinary he was and how, uh, how much aware he was of his own inadequacy and how fearful he was. And Lord, we identify with that. And we thank you that you have, have pledged to us to be with us wherever we go. And that because of your presence in life and because of your promise to sustain, we can, we can face life with a quiet air of, of assurance and confidence, not in ourselves, but in you. I pray in this week to come that you would remind us of the great truth of your presence and give us a new sense of uh, encouragement and confidence as we face life with you at our side. Pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen.